1: Today, my guest is Will Ahmed, the founder and CEO of Whoop, which has developed next-generation wearable technology for optimizing human performance and health. Whoop has raised more than $400 million from investors and is currently valued at $3.6 billion, making it the most valuable standalone wearables company in the world. Will has recruited an active advisory board that consists of some of the world's most notable cardiologists, technologists, marketers, and designers, He is a member of the Board of Fellows of Harvard Medical School, where he provides counsel to the dean and faculty on topics related to the strength and health of the institution. He was also named 2021 Sports Business Journal's 40 Under 40, as well as 2020 Fortune 40 Under 40 Healthcare List, and previously named to Forbes 30 Under 30 and Boston Business Journal's 40 Under 40. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot podcast network. A quick nod to HubSpot's new tools that they're rolling out for your business before we get started. You know that this year is almost done. And if you want to win next year in your business in 2024, you need tech that puts you in the pilot seat, that gives you the unfair advantage. This is what the new HubSpot sales hub is all about. It's gonna help you close the year strong. This tool does everything. Sales Hub allows you to collaborate on every single step of the customer journey. That means when a customer interacts with any part of your business. They have a comprehensive prospecting workspace. They have powerful analytics, data, tools, all to help your team close more sales don't let leads slip through the crack hubspot sales hub lets you accelerate every single part of your sales operation with precision and they have over 1400 integrations a ton of ways to mix in new features finish out your q4 strong and gear for an incredible 2024 with hubspot sales hub learn more at hubspot.com sales oh. what was the rabbit hole that you went down to start whoop? Well, it's
2: a, it's a great observation and I would say it's, it's true. I'm, I probably gravitate towards depth over, over breadth. I, I am kind of someone who follows his, his passions. And, uh, and so I was, you know, growing up, I was always into sports and exercise and, that was certainly a big part of my, my childhood, but a big part of my life, exercising, team sports, you name it. And I played uh, squash at Harvard, so I was a college athlete. And you know the, the, the process of training every day, three hours, four hours, the time commitment being similar or even longer, um, I just got very caught up on this question of how could I better understand what I was doing to my body? Like what does it mean to get fitter? What does it mean to train properly? What does it mean to overtrain or undertrain? Why do some athletes get injured and some don't? What does the other 20 hours of the day when you're not exercising do to your body? And so I thought these were fairly fundamental questions. And and so I expected quick answers. And what I found instead was like a real absence of information, which I, you know frankly seemed seems surprising and uh, I thought there should be good ways to you know understand the state of your body. And I think to your question about things that i've I've always gravitated to, like if I go back to my early childhood as well, i I always gravitated to technology. When I was you know thirteen years old, I had the first uh, voice recorder that could, you could talk to that would then type, you know, type what you said. I thought that would save me a lot of time in, in school. school. Turns out that that technology actually did need a couple more decades to get good. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I bought a the first Palm Pilot that could get on the internet with with caddying money that I saved. Um, I had one of the first iPods in my class, so I was someone who really liked uh, new technology, and I think in the back of my mind, I always knew that technology, particularly computers, were going from being on your desk to your lap to your pocket to what seemed inevitable would be on your body and even in your body. And so we're talking about a time frame in which I was starting whoop, I was you know around. Twenty years old, thinking about this idea. Uh, I had just gone from a BlackBerry to an iPhone, and apps were becoming a thing. So it it, it struck me that the that th- these different things were all about to collide. This idea that technology was getting smaller. This realization that you didn't know anything about your body, and uh, and my experience as being an athlete, and so. I ended up doing an enormous amount of physiology research, I ended up doing an enormous amount of market research on why this technology didn't exist in an accessible form factor. And that body of work became the, call it a business plan for starting the company.
1: And, you know, you made a really good point about health and wellness and not really understanding what's happening to our bodies, because we look at the average person that goes to the gym and they fall into almost like like ideological dogmas about health and wellness. And this is something that's happened for a significant period of time. And there is data out there and there are people that study the the journals. I mean, I just had Lane Norton on the show and he goes very deep into the actual science behind and he looks at consensus and he looks at which papers lean this way versus the other way in terms of what health, wellness, nutrition does to your body. But very few people look at it and say, hey, there's, there's something that we should probably just instead of just guessing and following this guru or that diet or that fad, almost akin to a religion, and let's just see what our bodies are doing and understand it. And it seems, you know, now it's a new fad where people are very focused on their health and wellness, but um, I'm also curious as to the lens that you look at health and wellness through. Why in your mind do you think you took this very pragmatic, data-driven, almost... It would be common sense to be able to track this versus I would say without putting a number to it, like 95 plus percent of the population that just falls into camps of what's already there.
2: Well, I didn't start whoop uh, to make a lot of money and I didn't want to create a product just to sell a lot of a product. You know, it wasn't Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't starting a business for starting a business's sake it was really the fundamental question was, well, how can you measure the human body to tell someone what they should do? And because that was our focus, that core problem that I experienced as an athlete, because that was our focus, it it first of all led us to having a lot of integrity around data collection, data accuracy, Mm -hmm. competing with medical technology, not competing with step counters, you know, there were all of a sudden, there was this enormous amount of competition. I, I'll say competition in quotes, because I always felt like it was a different thing. But, you know, V1 yeah. of step counters. And there were yeah. 10 products that I could list off right now, um, ranging from the best sports apparel brands, Nike, Under Armour, Adidas, Puma, great technology companies, Fitbit, Jawbone, Qantas, others. Um And then big big tech companies even entering the space like uh, um, Intel and Microsoft and others, and yet they were all doing this thing, which was, what can we sell to the mass market
1: that they already believe in, basically? Yeah, and like let's
2: invent steps as like this new thing that is your health unlock. But the to me it felt like there was very little substance to it, and uh, and so. I was really interested in can we measure things that are medically and scientifically relevant and validated. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we're going to start actually with a population that knows they need it. Professional athletes, because professional athletes obsess with their health and fitness. So in a way, I I almost de-risked our market by targeting people who got paid tens of millions of dollars to worry about their bodies Because
1: they were the most dialed in. It mattered the most to them, not the casual, trying to lose weight in New Year's, going to the gym person.
2: Yeah. I always believed we'd get to the mass market, which is really where we are today, where we have consumers of every shape and size, uh, with a lot of different, by the way, motivations for wearing Whoop. But I felt that the best way to get there was to start with really accurate data and the world's best athletes and move in that direction.
1: I love that. And I think that you had some, you had uh, two huge athletes in your first hundred customers just as an entrepreneur. I can't remember their name. Was one of them LeBron James, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, or was it somebody else? Okay. There was two. LeBron James w- and Michael
2: Phelps you- were two of our first hundred. That's the other one.
1: Yeah. How do you in as an entrepreneur?
2: So if you go back in time, they both were kind of like at the peak of their powers in 2015.
1: Yeah. So as an entrepreneur, you're starting this out. Maybe walk me through where they even you know, engaged with Whoop. What version of Whoop was that? How do you get this new piece of tech in front of these athletes that have this army of coaches behind them that are supporting their progress? They're probably looking at you like, what is this guy bringing to market? That What is he saying that he can measure on my athletes? How is he saying he's better than me? Well,
2: I think the secret to getting to anyone... Uh, famous in the world is identifying someone in that person's life who has a big influence on them, who everyone else doesn't already know.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And so in the case of professional athletes, that is not, you know, their agent or their coach or their spouse or partner, because everyone inundates those people to get to the athlete. And it turned out back then, it's changed a little bit, but back then the personal trainer was a pretty unknown person in a professional athlete's life. And yet they would spend, in some cases, 8, 10 hours a day with that person. You know, LeBron James spends more time with Mike Mencia his trainer, probably than his wife. I mean, it's just by virtue of being a professional athlete. And uh, and so in the case of some of these very high-profile athletes, uh, we went to their personal trainers and... Also, in the case of Whoop, that was actually the right person to try the product before putting it on the athlete because we needed the trainer to be an ally anyway. I got and then you. at the oh, end yeah. of the day, the product either delivers or it don't doesn't. I mean, that was our version one product. It probably had an 18 to 20 hour battery life. So people were constantly swapping on and off battery packs, <laughs> which was part of the reason we, ide- we invented the battery pack because we wanted people to never take it off. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. I mean, it was very validating to have athletes of that caliber wearing our product when no one else was. But it also then reminded me that's part of what it takes to become an athlete of that caliber, right? You're constantly looking for that 1% edge and pushing that envelope. Mm -hmm.
1: So when you when you take this product to market, so V1 of Whoop, you have LeBron James, you have Michael Phelps, which is absolutely phenomenal. What are those most important health markers that you're measuring? Because like you mentioned before, they were looking at steps that seemed always as an athlete, myself, not at that level, but still an athlete, that always seemed like a weird measure of health. So I can see objectively you're looking at that saying, hmm, I'm a college athlete, I think there's a lot more that we can do than just look at steps. So, what are those first few things that you include in V1 of WHOOP?
2: Well, we set out to replace the chest strap, which was a heart rate monitor kind of, you know, around your chest that was good at measuring exercise. Uh, We set out to replace the electrocardiogram, which measured heart rate variability. And uh, heart rate variability happens to be really important for measuring recovery. And we set out to replace the PSG machine, which is the gold standard for sleep. And in short, what that meant was three daily scores. Strain, which is everything you know related to stress, cardiovascular exertion. Recovery, which is really how much strain should you put on your body. And sleep, which is, of course, how much restorative sleep are you getting every night? And that, as a, um, a cycle, still exists today on Whoop, where we're trying to live a step ahead of you. You're getting 24 7 coaching. And, you know, Whoop will say in the morning, okay, you've got an X percent recovery. If it's high, take on a lot of strain. If it's low, maybe even rest, don't work out. And then mm-hmm. over the course of the day, you accumulate strain, which Whoop is automatically measuring. At the end of the day, Whoop looks at what you did to your body. It looks at the sleep debt that's accumulated, and it says, uh, "Okay, you should go to bed at this time to recover for tomorrow." So it's this, you know, nice circular loop of sleep, recover, strain, reset, and Whoop living a step ahead.
1: And so you've you've obviously tested this out with again these these high performing athletes. So the individual that's now mass market they're just trying to get into slightly better shape health whatever that metric or that that verbiage is um, what does this mean for them what is this how how radical of a life shift is what whoop is recommending say versus the quote unquote standard average american going about their day maybe going to the gym once or twice a week, which would already be great if they do that. But what is it recommending compared to what the average person does now?
2: Well, I think there's a huge difference in your just general self-awareness of measuring your body versus not. So step one is just wearing whoop. And when you start wearing it, all of a sudden, you're creating a baseline on yourself. You're now going to understand... With no intervention, how much sleep do I get? Is it good sleep? Is my body generally recovered or am I generally run down? Am I putting exertion on my body to get stronger, uh, to get fitter? Are there metrics that demonstrate I'm in good health for my age? How stressful is my life? Because WHOOP Mm -hmm. measures stress throughout the day. And then how are lifestyle and behavior decisions making affecting my body? Okay, you drink three times a week. What happens when you drink alcohol to your body the next day? Do you feel good about that? Does your body seem more run down than you were expecting? What might you not be realizing about your day to day? Could you be getting sick? Could you be peaking physically and maybe it's time to push yourself? So again, with very little intervention, all of that's going to become very clear just from starting Mm -hmm. to acknowledge the data. You know, someone spends seven hours in bed, they think they get seven hours of sleep. Newsflash, you spend seven hours in bed, you spend a lot of that time not getting sleep and you want to make your sleep as efficient as possible. So that's a great example of something that all of a sudden, when you look at the data, you know, an alarm bell goes off. Okay, well, what can I do actually just to make my seven hours more efficient, right? Because most people complain they don't have enough time for sleep. Look, Mm -hmm. you're already dedicating at least a quarter of your life to sleeping. Why don't we try to figure out what's going to make that quarter a more productive quarter of your life? right fairly simple concept and that's where then the interventions start to come so whoop might observe certain lifestyle decisions um your diet your um, hydration your alcohol consumption uh, a lack of mindfulness stress levels when you exercise in the morning or in the evening all these things whoop will tell you what's working and what's not and it'll start to help you make shifts It'll also give you a kick in the ass from time to time. You know, if you're peaking and you're, your body is well recovered, like let's get some exercise, let's get active, right? If you're yeah. run down though, and you're maybe a hard charging person, Whoop will be a product that tells you for the first time, hey, give yourself a rest, do less, take a nap. So it's, you know, I think that's where people all of a sudden realize, Wow, there's a lot of information I can have at my fingertips, and if I start just listening to a few things here, how much better do I feel? Wow,
1: I think that what it does is it's bringing a massive, like you said, a massive amount of self awareness. Humans have a ton of bias in everything they do, and I think that this is really it's removing a lot of the bias in your day to day. You know, when you when you when you look at the people that are using this. And when you go out into the market, now you're worth, you know, value, valuation, several billion dollars There's a huge market for you've built a huge company, excuse me. But there's also a huge market and there's a huge market of competitors. And I'm very curious when you were building this out, where was where was Apple? Where was Fitbit? Um Was that a concern for you at all? Because it seems like there was already these big technology players that were competing or now are competing in the space. And I think Whoop does quite a bit more than the data points that they collect. But at the same time, version one, was it already being outpaced by a Fitbit, by an Apple, by all the other competitors you just mentioned? Or was this already light years ahead? And Is that the first mover advantage that allowed you to capture, share of the market? And now you have the loyal customer base and that's where you grow from. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Today's show is brought to you by 1Password. Now listen, we all have that one friend who's constantly forgetting passwords and needing help to get into their accounts. I have a solution. It's called 1Password. 1Password is the award-winning password manager trusted by millions of users and companies like IBM and Slack to keep logins, credit cards, and other private info safe in an encrypted vault that only you can access. No more sticky notes with passwords or using the same password everywhere. I've been using 1Password for a year now and I can't recommend it enough. It saves me time from having to reset passwords and gives me peace of mind knowing my info is secure. With convenient features like automatic password generation and login autofill, 1Password takes the hassle out of passwords. You can use it on all your devices, iOS, Android, Mac, PC, everything syncs seamlessly. And with top-notch security audits and encryption, your data stays private. So do yourself a favor and check out 1Password today. Go to onepassword.com slash Clary and get a two week free trial. Let one password remember all of your logins for you so you can remember what really matters. That's onepassword.com slash Clary for two weeks free. I just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids, we all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to do list life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com.
2: I, I would say Whoop has always been different. I, I think that- Okay, you're not that, trying to compete. Yeah, that's probably the key word. you know. It, from, from an outside in, I think there's a perception that Uh, you know, these products all compete with one another and that may be fair, you know, a consumer has to choose between them, but you know, for 10 years at whoop, we've never said, Oh, this competitor has this feature. So we're going to do it. We've kind of always stuck to what is the problem we're trying to solve? Who are we really focused on? And what are all the things as a consequence we're not doing? So I'll give you one simple example. Whoop doesn't have a screen. It's not a watch. We have zero apps on top of health and fitness. You're not going to do phone Mm -hmm. calls, push notifications, emails, any of it. And the reason for that is that we want to be entirely focused on health and fitness. Another reason for it is once you're a watch, then you can't wear two watches, And so, all of a sudden, Whoop would then be competing with every watch, including Apple, including Rolex, fill in the blank, pick your favorite watch Mm brand. So, that would be one specific example for how we've chosen to be different. Um, Every single product that we've talked about today that's not Whoop measures steps. Whoop doesn't measure steps. We don't think it's a particularly useful metric. We don't think it's physiologically that relevant so we don't measure it. These are just examples of Whoop being different. And there's been a lot of really good companies that have entered the wearables space and um, unfortunately failed. And I think it's because this space touches a lot more than technology. It blends into identity and fashion and who you are, because when you wear a product twenty four seven, right? How many products do you wear twenty four seven? Not not many. Not None, many, Really? Right? Yeah. When you wear a product twenty four seven, it starts to say a lot about who you are. And so I think that's the that's the piece that technology companies didn't get right. They they missed a lot of the uh, the aesthetic and the identity and what is this what does this product make me feel. And I think on the flip side, yeah. a lot of the sports apparel brands that are actually great at brand and design really failed at building technology. And so you had this sort of interesting lane that Whoop could occupy mm-hmm. that tried to borrow from the best of sports apparel brands and technology companies.
1: So, but talk to me about, you know, some of the the pains that you have growing a business that okay, from the outside looking in, it looks like it may be similar to others, but when you're actually in this space and you've potentially invested in or tried other wearables, Whoop is very different. So early stage entrepreneur, you're building this from scratch. Uh, did you raise money? Did you try and bootstrap building MVP prototype? Walk me through something like those first initial pains that you had um, when you're trying to something that's that novel to market.
2: Well, it's, it's worth saying that you know, I started Whoop when when I was 22 years old, and I didn't realize how much capital the concept was going to require. And so, pretty much for the first like seven years of the company's history, I was in a, a, a like a constant phase of having to raise capital and whoop constantly raising out running out of money. And that was just it was just really hard. I mean, honestly, because we as i talked about we set out to build really ambitious technology that didn't exist so that's expensive and then on top of that we focused on initially professional athletes which is a small market and so fast forward five years from starting the company we had great technology and great brand positioning but we still didn't really have a business and so that made Uh, That made raising capital hard and time consuming. And a lot of people asked, well, you know, is this ever going to be a high revenue business and this and that? I think one of the most important decisions that we made was shifting the business to a subscription where you can now sign up for whoop for as little as $30 and you get this high piece, high tech piece of technology in, uh, you know, in the mail And you get to decide over time if you want to keep using it. And so it it really aligned our product with our members' satisfaction or their happiness as customers. And then uh, it created enormous growth because people could try the product. uh, Well, today you can try the product for free. So we're really leading with we've got the best product.
1: But you need – so obviously when you do subscription model, then you turn into – uh, I guess you turn into a software company as opposed to a hardware company. So even like multiples on valuation could be significantly higher that way, probably a little bit easier to raise money as well. Um, curious about your your insights on that. But you also have to account for the physical cost of creating the product. And then you have to make sure that the LTV of that customer makes sense. So when you're doing this, you're, you're building these products, you're, you're first selling them just like as a hardware sale. To start off, and then you move into subscription later on.
2: Yeah, we started with selling to athletes and teams for, you know, a thousand okay. or twelve hundred dollars a year, like high end enterprise sale. And then we yeah. went into consumer market, and we sold as a one time five hundred dollars fee. So it was okay, like uh, you. you know equivalent to a high end watch, uh, or you know Garmin type watch from a from a yeah. cost differential. And uh, and what we saw is the people who bought. WHOOP for $500 were wearing it for a very long time. And that was actually a big deal because most of the products that we've talked about, Scott, that have been less successful, they had these huge drop-off rates. So after three weeks, three months, people would stop wearing them. And WHOOP didn't have that problem. Uh, We actually had people wear them for a very long time.
1: You know, that was, going to be my next, that was going to be my next question. It was going to be, if you're doing a subscription model, how do you, how do you get the consumer behavior to keep the product? But you already had that sort of handled.
2: Yeah. So it, we already saw that there was that long-term stickiness, yeah. but we weren't selling that many units. And so we asked ourselves, is there a business model here that better aligns us with customers and allows them to try the product for way less cost? Uh, and, and that worked, but to your point, it then created another problem, which again was related to cash because you actually are grow Now you're growing very fast, but you're, you're shipping product that costs more than the dollars you're getting. Now that's okay because later you're going to make it all back because they're on a subscription, but out of the gates, you might be upside down. And so. Fortunately, the venture capital industry was kind of invented to solve that problem, which is <laughs> like uh, okay, there's clear product market fit and there's clear demand, and you've got a positive LTV to CAC thing, but it's going to take time to get paid back.
1: So then you then that's when you started. I'm assuming that's when you started raising. Uh,
2: to, uh, yeah, I mean, we raised capital. Yeah. Consistently for eleven years straight, but like I can tell you, and for your audience that has to raise capital, like Whoop has raised four hundred million to date. The first four hundred thousand dollars I raised took way longer and was much harder than the last two hundred million dollars that I raised, and it just goes to show that it's not. It's not the dollar size. Like at every stage, there's what feels like an unlimited number of people that could write the check to support your ask. Like there's a lot of capital Mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, That's something I tell entrepreneurs all the time. There's a lot of capital in the world. Don't get bogged down by someone who says no, just move on to the next. Uh, But it is a skill like it's a thing you have to learn how to do. Like fundraising is, you know, presenting, it's it's building relationships, it's having an ask, it's knowing when to negotiate and when not to. And uh, and so that's that's a skill that you develop with time. And the reason it was easier to raise 200 million dollars than 400 grand was well, I had 10 years of practice and the business was a much better business than you know the business plan in the early days. And so, you know, to anyone raising capital if you're having trouble with it, just know that every entrepreneur at some point has trouble with it.
1: Two questions about raising capital. Actually, I'll will ask the first one that I I'm I'm curious about as a, as somebody who's raising capital for 11 years, when do you achieve profitability and when do you when do you look to sort of flip from raising to next step of the company, but I mean you're still in this you just you've raised up you've raised over 400 million. but first question is as a founder who's raising capital for 11 plus years, what are the tips that you have to not sort of let that sidetrack you because raising capital can be a full-time job. And that's a lot of raising capital. So are you enlisting investment bankers? Are you doing this all yourself? Are you going on road shows? Like what are the things that you've learned? That allow you to do this and still build a business successfully and not like lose all your hair. You still have a lot of good hair. Still there's not too many grays left or not too many grays yet, excuse me. So how do you do this properly?
2: Well, the first critical theme is either be raising capital or don't be raising capital. But don't be in a gray area of kind of raising capital. And that's a mistake that I certainly made, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs make in the early stages. Because the the reality is you kind of feel like you always need capital. And so then you're sort of always in a position where someone can write a check. But the problem Mm -hmm. with that, which leads to then the second point, is you're not creating a competitive process. You have to create a competitive process. And it can't just be that you're always open for business. Because then people feel like, well, I can show up whenever I want. So mm-hmm. if you wanna raise capital, you have to say, all right, from from this period to this period, I'm gonna take introductory meetings, and maybe that's a two-week to four-week period. And then you hit it hard. You try to meet with as many people as you can in a compressed period of time, and then you start to figure out, okay, how many people are interested, and you build a funnel on down. Within that process, I'll say the third mistake that I made about as many times as anyone can make it is you're going to come across people where you're on the fifth call the sixth call the 12th call and they seem very eager you keep telling yourself they're going to get over the hump but there's always like there's always one more thing they need right empirically that person never writes the check like I've got enough data on this at this point to just know <laughs> that like that person never writes the check. And um, the time in which you can go from just moving on from that person and finding a new person who gets really excited and does your deal quickly uh, is actually a very short period of time. Because like I said, there's like a virtually unlimited amount of capital in the world. So uh you know, to to summarize, it's be fundraising or not. And when you're fundraising, create a very competitive process and funnel. And when someone is on the fence, just move on, like keep going. And uh, like that, you'll be amazed uh, at how much more efficient the process gets.
1: And now to my my second question or second point, just for an entrepreneur that's thinking of doing an 11 year run. And let's, pray that they get to the point where you're at, where you can raise up the 400 million. You have a multi-billion dollar valuation unicorn company. If you are running this model, there's a period where you're not profitable. And then VCs solve that problem. Do you ever look just in your head as a founder, do you look to ever flip the profitability ASAP? Or are you looking, this is going to IPO at some point, And this is where I'm heading towards.
2: Well, <clears throat> This is this is a question that I think depends a lot on your business and yeah. what your motivation is for building a company. For Whoop, we've always had a big research and development element to this company because we've been swimming with sharks. We've got the most well-funded, biggest technology companies in the world trying to copy our technology or build similar products or you know who hope we just go out of business, right? And so yeah. we have to stay innovative. And that requires um, an investment. Additionally, uh, the business is still growing quickly. And so when you're on a when you're on a, a faster growth curve, you can invest towards that growth. Now it's worth noting that the market, so to speak, of technology companies or the public market has sort of changed its opinion on do you want growth or do you want profitability? So you want to keep that in mind, too, if you feel like you have to raise capital soon. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so we've been in a position where we haven't needed to raise capital for quite some time. And so we've been able to... Uh, follow a, a path that feels appropriate for WHOOP and the stage that we're at and the importance of research and development.
1: We're just going to take a quick break. Thank the longtime friend and sponsor of the show, the HubSpot Podcast Network. They have incredible podcasts. One of my favorites, one that you have to check out this month is Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew. Now, if you've ever noticed, the smallest changes always seem to have the biggest impact on Nudge, You learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. The point is, every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice from these incredible entrepreneurs, behavioral scientists, and everybody in between. Nudge is fast-paced, but very insightful and a must-listen if you're a podcast fan. Make sure you listen to Nudge wherever you love to get your podcasts. Yeah, no, I think that that's, it's, that's a totally fine perspective to take, and I think it's the reason why I asked that question is because... I think that I just want to frame when a founder is building a company, the path that they're going to go on and have the foresight to figure out, do they want to raise money? Where do they want to take the company? What is the market they're playing into? Are they building it to sell? Are they building it in terms of like, I want to have a nice cash flowing business. Are they building it to IPO? I mean, I'm sure, you know, at at the stage you're at, I'm sure people have approached you names of companies that everybody would know I have no idea but just I would assume because they start they start approaching when a company's worth 50 million let alone 400 so it's just interesting to how entrepreneurs think through that problem and I just want them to be aware of all the different opportunities because I don't want them to just run into raising money if they don't have to all the time I want them to have that sort of the end in mind that's really what I'm trying to teach over to an entrepreneur that's just starting out at least
2: I think it's a great I think it's a great perspective and it's it's worth saying that Whoop is not similar to all businesses in that, you know, many businesses don't require a really big upfront technology risk. I mean, we've had real yeah. like existential technology risk in building this company. Yeah. And uh and so many companies can find customers much faster. And for what it's worth, I think with the growth of AI in the past two years and large language models, you're going to have companies that are 10 people doing tens and 20, you know, millions of, of revenue. And, and, yeah. uh, and those businesses can be very profitable and, um, certainly not require, uh, meaningful venture investment.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. You actually, there's, um, there's a there's a, a really interesting chart or a graph, and it shows the amount of employees required to get to one million dollars in revenue, and it sort of That's just cool shows this downward curve. Have you seen this chart before? But no, but I can. It basically it makes sense. Yeah, so it's like you know from the 1940s or 1900s to 2023, and now it's like one or two employees are required to get to a million dollars in revenue versus fifty or hundred or whatever it was. So that's just a, an entrepreneurial thought to take away um, I want to talk about some of that some of your thoughts on innovation so from the get-go you focused on counterintuitive approach I mean you mentioned you don't have a screen um, you're tracking very meaningful health data that makes the you know the the wearer more self-aware how do you look at innovation when you think of you know the next the next piece that you want to roll out, what do you look for in terms of, I think the market will appreciate this, I think the, this will resonate with the market, or is this, you have a whole bunch of r and D? I I guess, when you're looking at something that's never been done before, how does your brain work? How do you approach problem solving, uh, like that particular thing? It's such
2: a great question, and it's interesting that I don't feel, I don't think entrepreneurs talk as much about it. <clears throat> you know they talk around it but they're not explicitly addressing what risks are we taking as a company and when people hear about technology risk for some reason it's very easy for them to say oh that's risky oh it's risky can you build that will that be able to be accomplished in a certain time frame i don't know how we're going to build that like those are those are things that will come up when you propose technology risk. However, when when an entrepreneur is presenting a plan that seems achievable and you're launching a product that you know can already be made or exist, it surprises me that that doesn't also introduce alarm bells for risk. Hey, Mm. there's a strategic risk there that you're not innovating, right? And so, it's just worth acknowledging that technology risks and strategic risks are two different types of risks. And I personally, I personally, gravitate towards taking technology risks that, in effect, decrease your strategic risk, just decrease your market that. risk. Right. Uh, let's take an extreme example: uh, curing cancer. Okay, very high technology risks, very low market risks, right? So, as I think about building an innovative company, to me, it's a huge risk strategically not to take very big technology risks. Like, we need to take technology risks. We need to be pushing the envelope on what is possible to unlock human performance, which is our mission at WHOOP and has been for 11 years. And uh, and so to me, innovation is is being pulled towards the the risk of technology and the unknown versus uh, shying away from it.
1: I absolutely love that thought process and, and that, that mental model because I find that a lot of entrepreneurs, they actually, they to your point, they default to uh, uh, the, the strategic risk or the the market saturation risk or however you want to describe it, um, or, but they don't actually understand that that's a larger risk than innovating. Because I think the innovating thing is hard to grasp. The market, it's there. I can navigate it. I can see it. I can touch it. I can play within it. But the strategic, the the innovation, it's almost like an esoteric concept. It seems scary. It seems like there's a billion variables as opposed to just a thousand to draw a parallel. But I understand exactly what you're saying. So what is the what is the strategy, even though you have the innovation risk and pursuing the innovation risk decreases the, the strategic risk, what is the strategy in innovating that still even more so can decrease innovation risk in terms of creating something that consumers want to adopt.
2: Well, a good framing to think about, especially with hardware, is if you're brainstorming a new hardware today and you think it's going to launch in 18 months, well, in 18 months, the world's going to have changed. And then on top of that, that product you just came up with might be in market for another two years after you've launched it. Mm -hmm. So you need to put your head in a place that is three, four years from now. And I think a lot of times people aren't comfortable going to that place because that place tells you that what you're building right now is actually not that ambitious it's not that innovative <laughs> you know yeah like i i i meet with a lot of entrepreneurs who are you know earlier in that journey and and maybe they're building their first product and and so i think there, the the thing sometimes i'll say is if that product that you're going to build for the next 12 months existed today it would very likely be innovative are you worried at all, though, about what it looks like in 12 months and how the world's changed and how the market's changed? And by the way, your competitors didn't stop working for the for 18 months. They're going to put stuff out. So, all of these things, I think, just speak towards like cranking up that ambitious you know, ambitiousness with with your products and your technology. And look, there's a there's a positive to this too, which is that. You then, I think, attract talent that wants to work on hard problems. There's a lot yeah. of companies out there that, whether explicitly or implicitly, have just decided they're not that going to be that innovative. And so those are companies where you can build something on a very predictable timeline that uh, you know can be built. But that's just a different company and culture than what we're trying to do at Whoop.
1: Speak to me about, you know, you as an entrepreneur founder from from day zero to, to where you're at right now. Uh, the this this the span of different problems that you've had to deal with is huge, obviously at different stages of the company as an individual, how have you grown? How have you matured? What are some lessons that you've learned as an entrepreneur now dealing with 500 plus people, uh, you know, raising $400 million that obviously were not so apparent (laughs) when you first started out.
2: I think, I think I've gotten a lot better at, uh, embracing, Negative feedback and debate and and pulling in a lot of different perspectives. I think in the early years of building Whoop, I built sort of a self defense mechanism, if you will, towards negative feedback of any kind, and it, it was in large part because I I was getting so much negative feedback. I, I, I you know I wasn't really that used to rejection, and at age 22, you know, I had like kind of a nice young person resume. I went to good schools and captain sports teams, got good grades, da-da-da-da, you know, went to Harvard, whatever. And then all of a sudden I graduated and start this company and I feel like on a daily basis I'm getting punched in the face and getting rejected. <laughs> and so, and by the way, that's everyone doing anything in life. So this is not personal to me, but I'm just saying that I you know, I didn't know how to grapple with that. And, and it was very negative. Uh, It wasn't uh, a lot, there was really a very small number of people I would meet in a week that would say, this is exciting, or you're on the right path. And look, I think they had good reason for it. I was super young. I was not an engineer or a doctor or a designer or fill in the blank of all the things you might want um, a founder of a company like this to be. And uh, and so, my defense mechanism was to not hear it at all, like walls were up. And uh, the problem with that is it carried over into how I was managing the company too. And so, if members of my team were disagreeing with me, I just had like a tunnel vision kind of stubbornness. Um, and look, there's an aspect to building a company where you have to have strong points of view on the world, and those points of view probably are contrarian and need to turn out to be right. But the the, the nitty gritty of managing a company is a million details, and those details require iteration and disagreement and all sorts of uh, collaboration. And so as a young person uh, running whoop, I was bad at that. I really was and uh, and I was probably much harder to work with as a consequence. It's worth noting, I was also like stressed out of my mind. I really didn't I didn't <laughs> know how to handle the pressure that I had put myself in, which was raising tens of millions of dollars and having 25 employees or 30 employees, like all of that felt really like the weight of the world. And and so it took years for me to build also like a, a process by which I was comfortable in that hot seat and I was managing stress appropriately And I was hearing feedback, you know, you can Mm -hmm. hear feedback, you don't necessarily have to listen to it. I think that's a powerful frame for anyone in a leadership position. You want people to feel heard and you want to embrace those, you know, differing points of view. And at the end of the day, if you're the CEO or you're running the thing, you get to make the call. So it's worth really uh, embracing some of that different, those different perspectives. anyway, that that's a little bit of a, of a background on that evolution.
1: I, I love that. And, and I know that you've spoken a lot on, on other, on other podcasts about decoupling your own self-worth from directly correlating to the success of the company. And I think that's actually a very powerful point. And I am curious how you came to that realization, um, how you navigated sort of that, mental health journey, probably had impacts on physical health as well. Uh, Give, maybe give the listeners a little bit of insight as to entrepreneurs in the audience, even just high performers, because I think this is a very common issue. You tie your self-worth to your professional success. So walk me through sort of that uh, light bulb moment in your life.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important for an entrepreneur, but really anyone in, in, uh, in their career, not to tie their self-identity to that of the business or the project that they're working on. And there's a few reasons for this. The first is that it's not actually the case that your performance equals the performance of the project or the business or fill in the blank. Like I, in the early days of Whoop, if Whoop had a great day, I felt I had a great day. If Whoop had a bad day, I felt I had a bad day. And if Whoop was failing, I was failing. And in reality, like that's not actually what's going on. You can give a great pitch and a great presentation and an investor is going to tell you no. And it has actually very little to do with you. You can put together the perfect sales package and a great marketing plan And some external event like COVID might be the reason that your sales stumble. Uh, On the flip side, and I've seen this too, you can have businesses that are doing great. And all of a sudden, the leaders within that org are actually spinning out of control. I mean, really losing who they are, Uh, whether it comes from a place of arrogance or whether it comes from Um, You know, substance abuse or fill in the blank. And so it's just worth explicitly saying like you and your company's performance are different things and you can keep getting a little better every day independent from what's happening in your business. The advantage to that is it helps you really focus on what you can control. You can control a lot about yourself. You can control a lot about how you feel. You can control a lot about your output. And that brings, I think, a huge uh, feeling of self-awareness. It brings a huge feeling of empowerment. And it it gives you a little bit of an acceptance that some things are out of your control. And the, the other reason it's worth Emphasizing this point is it's often the case that you, the leader, need to get better in order for your business to get better. So, you identifying ways that you can get a little better every day and working on those
3: mm-hmm.
2: will, at some later stage, play an important role in your business, but may not today be one to one at all. You know, when I was 23 years old and trying to manage, 25 people i was way more uncomfortable and way more stressed and way more dysfunctional than i am today 10 years later managing 500 people and again mm-hmm. it's it, it's it's because it's not about the numbers it's about how are you trying to grow in in the role
1: what were some um i i would actually like to speak about some health wellness topics and i think a good place to start would be what have you incorporated into your own life because i want to tie i want to tie things that you've incorporated into your own life things best practices that you've seen with some people that use whoop um, some of the things that whoop measures why we should be paying attention to them so let's go down that road for a second so for yourself what do you do that is sort of focused on your mental health physical health um that you do every single day
2: I mean, one huge one is I is I meditate every day, and I do that for 20 minutes every morning. I highly recommend it. I would actually probably point to meditation as the single biggest thing that pulled me out of that call it darker area darker era of of uh, being a CEO and then becoming a CEO who was much more comfortable, much more uh, capable of managing stress. So meditation, I highly recommend. We can talk more about that if you'd like. I uh, I try to exercise most days of the week, but in practice, that's probably you know four to five days a week. I think mm. having days off is good. I uh, eat three meals every day. I don't really snack. I try to eat you know reasonably healthy food, but I'm not. Uh, you know, measuring every calorie in and out of my body.
3: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.
1: hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed.
2: I um, do a lot around sleep because I just want to make my sleep as efficient as possible. So... Mm -hmm. I try to go to bed and wake up at similar times. It turns out if you do that, it inherently makes your restorative sleep higher and it makes your physiological biomarkers better just by going to bed and waking up at the same time. Uh, I try not to eat too close to bed. I drink a ton of water, as you can probably tell from this this <laughs> podcast. I. Uh, you know, I still drink alcohol, but not that often, uh, which from wearing WHOOP, you kind of find alcohol is just generally negative on on your body. <laughs> um, and uh, although, you know, it, it, there's always a good time uh, for these things. And I like to sleep in a cold, dark, quiet room. Uh, each one of those things makes your sleep uh, better. I wear blue light blocking glasses about an hour before bed every single night. Whoop actually makes these glasses, but they have like a red tint that uh, blocks all the blue light in your life. So I would say I'm still probably optimizing my life as a CEO more so than as just purely a human. (laughs) And as a consequence, like I'm on my phone, you know, up until the moment I go to bed Maybe I'll watch TV with my wife in bed, whatever. And, uh, but, but those, you know, those devices produce blue light, which essentially tells your body to stay awake. And, uh, and it turns out wearing blue light blocking glasses, which have this red tint that blocks it, uh, prevents that, that exposure hitting your, hitting your brain. And, and the, the consequence of that is they make you naturally sleepy. And in turn, they actually give you higher restorative sleep. So that's just a collection of, of things that I've found valuable.
1: Let's talk about, we can we can go into meditation because you're very passionate about it, but let's talk about restorative sleep. So obviously this is, whoop tracks this significantly. Um, so what is restorative sleep? I mean, like just as a layman, I know REM sleep, but I don't know much about sleep at all. So maybe give us like a, a, ma- a quick masterclass in restorative sleep, what most people do incorrectly, what's screwing up their sleep, what's good sleep, what's bad sleep, how it impacts your life. Because I think that's actually a really big piece that unless you've gone down this rabbit hole, you're measuring your sleep with whoop, um, you may not know anything about.
2: Yeah, this is is really going to become the pitch for why you should measure your sleep. Okay, because let's take that person who spends seven hours in bed. Of the seven hours they spend in bed, they're really in four stages of sleep. Light, awake, REM, and slow wave. Now, light and awake are essentially useless. They don't give you that much benefit. REM and slow wave sleep, together known as restorative sleep, that's like where all the magic happens. And your REM sleep is when your mind is repairing, cognitive repair. And that's also when you have dreams. So if you're someone who can like never remember dreams uh, or you don't think you're having dreams, it's probably because you're not getting enough REM sleep. Slow wave sleep is when your body produces 95% of its human growth hormone. So people think that they're getting stronger in the gym or when they work out. Mm -hmm. You're actually getting stronger during slow wave sleep because that's when your body is repairing itself. If you've got an injury, if you're trying to make any type of fitness gains, uh, if you're at an older stage in life, slow-wave sleep is so, so important. Okay, let's go back to the person who spends seven hours in bed. You could spend seven hours in bed and get 30 minutes of REM and slow-wave sleep. That's not a lot. You could spend seven hours in bed and get five and a half hours of REM and slow-wave sleep that's a ton. Again, same amount of time in bed. Two completely different people. And I say that quite Mm -hmm. literally. Like, the person who's getting 30 minutes, I guarantee you has issues in their life. They're tired. They're not happy. Maybe they're going through periods of depression. They're stressed. They can't manage stress. Person five and a half hours, I almost guarantee you they're happy. Like, you can just wow. plot the chart of correlating that. It's that it's that significant,
1: basically. Yeah. yeah. Now,
2: to be fair, those are both outliers. Thirty minutes would be very little. Five and a half hours would be a ton. But you know, I've been measuring this for a very long time. I can now feel the difference between two and a half hours and three and a half hours of restorative sleep. And it's not that many things to tweak to be at three and a half hours or four versus one and a half or two and so this is where like to me managing you know managing your sleep starts with measuring it figure out what your baseline is and then like let's tweak one or two things let's not get crazy we're not doing a big lifestyle overhaul hopefully like maybe it's going to bed and waking up a little more consistently maybe it's not having the extra glass of wine Maybe it's your bedroom needs to be darker. Maybe it's drinking a glass of water before bed. Again, these are like fairly simple things that you would be blown away how much they can improve the quality of your sleep and as a consequence, the quality of your life.
1: And listen, I know you're not a doctor, but I'm going to ask you anyways, so you can just like from your experience or from other people that you know maybe that are qualified to speak on this when you get this kind of sleep is this something that can impact your longevity your lifespan decrease cancer decrease dementia i would assume yes for all of it but i don't i don't know if it's that impactful do you have any data points or any perspective on that there's an
2: avalanche of medical research that points to a lack of restorative sleep being associated with virtually every disease state and negative uh in your wow. life
1: that's amazing in a I mean, bad it's, way it, it <laughs> is like kidding. it is
2: the magic pill it's like if you can just sleep a lot better your life will be a lot better
1: um so that's that is obviously huge and I'm assuming that, you know, that optimizes all of your hormones as well. So, if you're trying, obviously, you're recovering from the gym, but also probably reduces your cortisol to a degree. So, if you're trying to lose weight, it's going to be a little bit easier. Like, I'm sure it sort of just optimizes everything. Um, what are some other main, you mentioned meditation, just in terms of measurement, though. Uh, uh, I'll give you one, one I'll more give you an interesting. Yeah. I'll give
2: you an interesting research yeah. study, and then I'll give you an outlier, of someone on WHOOP. I don't think he'd be uh, upset with us talking about this because we talked about it on our podcast together. So there's um, medical research that came out recently that showed a lack of REM sleep increases your amygdala's response. So again, REM sleep is where your your mind's repairing. Mm -hmm. Your amygdala response is the fight or flight Mm -hmm. response. So if you're not getting as much REM sleep, they've proven that your, your body is going to be more apt to being in a, this sort of fight or flight state, right? Like kind of more wound up, essentially. Mm-hmm. I did a uh, podcast with Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold famously uh, is the guy who's climbed all of these amazing uh, you know, mountains without a rope. And are you familiar with Alex?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
2: Okay. So I asked him about his sleep and it turns out he gets five and a half hours of restorative sleep a night. So if you're asking yourself, how can a guy possibly climb over, you know, 10,000 feet without a rope? Well, what do you know? His amygdala response is way lower than everyone else's. Because he's getting so much quality sleep every night, and I just thought was he aware of that? Yeah, was he aware that he was doing it on the Whoop podcast? And and it made perfect sense. But it was just fascinating that like he had such an outlier level of uh, Hmm. of restorative sleep.
1: That's fascinating. what would be one other if you if you were going to pick one other life changing intervention that would be the cause of a thing that whoop is measuring outside of sleep obviously a huge one what would that one other thing be
2: for me personally people
1: are aware of it when they see it
2: for me personally meditation has been that i mean learning how to control my breathing being able to listen to my thoughts being in a place where you have a mechanism that you can go to, to reset, you know, the practice of meditating is, is breathing and letting what's in your mind float in and out of your mind. And in the process, learning how to cycle through thoughts Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: essentially choose what you're paying attention to. And so you're developing essentially a third person perspective of yourself. Here are the things Will is thinking about. Oh, Will should fast forward that and hey, let's. Will should focus on this. That's kind of what's happening when I meditate. And then the powerful thing about it where and where it starts to feel like a superpower is then that starts happening throughout your life. Rather than being angry and realizing you're in a conversation where your voice is elevated and people are yelling at one another and you're kind of catching up to yourself Mm -hmm. you'll hear a voice in your head that says oh will's about to get angry and all of a sudden then it becomes a choice well
1: Mm.
2: should i get angry do i want to get angry and that's a very powerful i think uh relationship to get to build with yourself
1: do you notice because you mentioned that when you're measuring throughout your day you, you measure uh, sort of the, these three stages of, of your daily uh, of your daily response to, to and when you meditate do you notice that any sort of markers improve in any of those three measurements that you take
2: well, if you were to look at my stress levels while I'm meditating, all of a sudden, they're the same levels as sleeping. So I do think that my meditation yeah. practice starts to resemble sleep to my body, which is quite powerful. You you can also look at how someone sleeps on days they meditate versus days they don't. I mean, I almost never miss meditating in a day, so it's just that much It's like, you know, taking a shower, brushing my teeth. It's just kind of built into my life. So I actually don't have as much data on, you know, having not done it. But I will say, if you looked at the whole whoop population, for people who meditate some days versus others, the days they do meditate, we often see a lower stress level throughout the day. And we often see improved sleep that night, independent from when they meditated, I mean, this is kind of a powerful phenomenon, but meditating first thing in the morning may actually improve your sleep 15 hours later.
1: Is is there a certain kind of meditation that you do in particular? Because I don't know it that well, but I know there's like a, a ton of different styles, right? Of meditation.
2: Yeah, my practice began as Transcendental Meditation and then over time has become a few different things. And it'll depend a little on the day. I just can't, yeah. you know, I can't emphasize enough the the value for people in trying some of these different techniques. We live in a world which is constantly trying to get your attention and a world in which you're almost never alone with your thoughts. And I think that there's problems with that. and And I think that Meditation, or mindfulness, or closing your eyes and breathing—whatever you want to call it—there, that's a really powerful offset.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a noisy world. Um, you've evolved. I, I appreciate how much you've evolved as as a as a human and as a CEO and as a founder as you built this company. I think that this actually is a testament to the self awareness probably that your product brings because. You could have evolved regardless as an individual, but I think that the ability to see how a day in the life truly affects you, I, I think that that's probably very telling. That's probably why you've come to take on some of the habits, reduce your stress, find ways to optimize yourself, find ways to optimize your sleep, your life, the way you interact with your team, with your investors. Just all, like I can see this starts to permeate like all these different aspects of a day in the life of. Which is fascinating.
2: Well, th- you know, thank you, Scott. I will say, like, I, I think I'm still learning. Uh, I- I'm still a work in progress. You know, I don't, I don't claim to As have all. The- <laughs> I don't claim to have all the answers. And and it- it's just, I think it's making a commitment though to that, to that process of life and acknowledging, like, hey, what can we do to keep climbing the ladder?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um- I want to just give you the floor because I just I always wrap up with a few uh, a few quick questions to pull some last insights out of you. But is there anything um, that you wanted to go into? I know uh, I know a big focus for you right now is uh, your coaching feature. Um, uh, that's something that's new to the Whoop community, obviously, uh, bringing in LLMs and I think uh, like AI into uh, the Whoop experience. But any other lessons? Any other? ideas for the future of the company anything else basically the floor is yours that you wanted to go into that we didn't chat about
2: well i I would encourage anyone listening to this who's been intrigued by thinking about ways to improve your health or your fitness or measure your body to just check out whoop.com and we now have the ability for you to try the product for free so you can literally Mm -hmm. sign up for 30 days full whoop experience uh and if you don't like it you just send it back so to me that feels pretty low risk on a consumer side and and who knows you know for a lot of people it'll it'll change their life because they'll measure things they didn't they never have before
1: yeah amazing um okay last two questions uh, and also by the way where are the socials i'm just going to drop the socials while we're live so you're uh at, 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 at will, will ahmed and at woo yeah everywhere Okay. Perfect. Gotcha. Everywhere. All right. Um, if you could tell your 20 year old self one thing, what would that thing be after all the experience now?
2: Keep going. I mean, that's been a talk track in my head for a, a long time. When things are great, something's lurking around the corner, you know, keep going. Don't get too comfortable, confident, full of yourself. Like just keep going. And when things are bad and it's hard and you're failing and the company's failing, just keep going. Like it gets better. The sun also rises. So I think, <laughs> I think trying to find balance in the chaos of building something that doesn't exist or the chaos of your life and just reminding yourself like the highs, the lows, they're going to keep coming and you just got to keep going.
1: I love that. Um and you know when you look back you've had an incredibly successful career as an entrepreneur you've built this incredible company at this stage in your life think about this question personally and professionally what does success mean to you
2: Well success for Whoop is unlocking human performance and delivering a product that's improving people's lives I mean, increasingly we get messages for how it saved someone's life and they saw something in their data and all of a sudden they were talking to their doctor and, and next thing you know, they're in the ER. So Mm -hmm. those stories for me are incredibly powerful. And, and, um, and so that's what I, I really gravitate to from a, from a business success standpoint is how many people's lives are we improving with this technology and how can we continue to do that for a long time and at a bigger scale? I think if we do that, all the business metrics follow. I think for me personally, it's it's kind of back to the you know the last point, which is to to keep going and seeing what I'm capable of and how else I can grow and where else I'm going to fall down and try to pick myself back up. You know, this idea of of being in the arena and sort of just embracing the fact that you're uh, you're figuring it out and it's hard and it's difficult and i wouldn't have it any other way you know and so for me that's that's kind of like the personal test but i've come to realize that the success of it is being in the middle of it and feeling comfortable the success of it is not like exiting it exiting the mm-hmm. arena and and drinking margaritas on the beach like to me that that's not that's not the end state the end state is figuring out how you can be in this epicenter of innovation and chaos and stress and everything else and feel comfortable and be able to deliver value for the world. So uh, while also, by the way, having great loving relationships in your life with my wife, with my parents, with my friends, uh, that for me is personal success.